And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is September 29th, 272nd day of the year. 93 days remain until the year's over with. And you've asked for holidays and observances. It's National Coffee Day. National Starbucks Day. Sukkot. That's a Jewish holiday known as the Feast of Booths. AFL Grand Final Day, uh, Friday. Confucius Day. German Sandwich Day. International Day of Awareness of Food Loss and Waste. International Happy Goose Day. Uh, Michaelmas. It's a special day honoring angels. Mid-Autumn Festival. Mid-Autumn Moon Festival. National Biscotti Day. National Brave Day. National Carson Day. National Police Remembrance Day. National Silent Movie Day. Pitru Paksa. Uh, Save the Koala Day. Short Purple for Platelets Day. VFW Day, World Heart Day, World's Biggest Coffee Morning. So go have your cup. Alrighty. 61 BC, Pompey the Great celebrates his third triumph for victories over the pirates and the end of the Mithridatic War on his 45th birthday. In the year 1011, Danes captured Canterbury after a siege, taking uh, Alfra, Archbishop of Canterbury, as a prisoner. 1227, Frederick II, Holy Roman Emperor, is excommunicated by Pope Gregory IX for his failure to participate in the Crusades during the investiture uh, controversy. 1267, a Treaty of Montgomery recognizes Llewellyn Ap Griffith as Prince of Wales, but only as a vassal of King Henry III. 1364, during the Hundred Years' War, Anglo-Breton forces defeat the Franco-Breton army in Brittany in the War of Breton Succession. 1567, during the French War of Religion, Protestant coup officials in Nimes uh, massacre Catholic priests in an event now known as Michaelade. 1578, Tegucigalpa, hmm. capital city of Honduras, is claimed by the Spaniards. 1714, the Cossacks of the Russian Empire kill about 800 people overnight in Heliwoto during the Great Wrath. 1717, uh, an earthquake strikes Antigua, Guatemala, destroying much of the city's architecture. 1789, the U.S. Department of War further establishes a regular army on the strength of several hundred men. 1829, the Metropolitan Police of London, later known as the Met, is founded. 1848, Battle of Pakods is a stalemate between Hungarian and Croatian forces in the first battle of the Hungarian Revolution. 1850, the Papal Bull Universalis. Ecclesiae restores Roman Catholic hierarchy in England and Wales. 
1855, the Philippine port of Iolo is opened to world trade by the Spanish administration. 1864, the Battle of Chaffin's Farm is fought in the American Civil War. 1864 also saw the Treaty of Lisbon, which defined the boundaries between Spain and Portugal and abolishes the Cuoto Misto microstate. 1885, the first practical public electric tramway in the world is open in Blackpool, England. 1907, cornerstones laid at the Cathedral Church of St. Peter and St. Paul, better known as Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. 1911, Italy declares war on the Ottoman Empire. 1918, Bulgaria signs the Armistice of Salonika, ending its participation in World War I. 1918, the Hindenburg Line is broken by an Allied attack in World War I. Also in 1918, Germany's Supreme Army Command tells Kaiser Wilhelm II Imperial Chancellor George Michaelis uh, to open negotiations for an armistice to end World War I. 1920, Ukrainian War of Independence, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, agrees to a truce with uh, Makovacin, China. 1923, the Mandate for Palestine takes effect, creating Mandatory Palestine. Also in 1923, the Mandate for Syria and Lebanon takes effect. Also in 1923, the first American track and field championships for women are held. 1932, last day of the Battle of between Paraguay and Bolivia during the Chaco War. 1940, the two Avro Ansons collide midair over New South Wales, Australia, remain locked together and land safely. 1941, during World War II, German forces, with the aid of local Ukrainian collaborators, begin the two-day Baba Yar massacre. 1954, the convention establishing CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, is signed. 1957, the Kistheim disaster is the third worst nuclear accident ever recorded. 1959, the Lockheed L-188 Electra crashes in Buffalo, Texas, killing 34 people. 1971, Oman joins the Arab League. 1972, Japan establishes diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China after breaking official ties with the Republic of China. When you hear People's Republic, it's always communist. 1975, WGPR becomes the first black-owned and operated television station in the U.S. 1979, a dictator, Francisco Macias of Equatorial Guinea, is executed by soldiers from Western Sahara. 1981, an Iranian Air Force Lockheed C-130 Hercules military transport aircraft crashes into a firing range near Erizak, Iran, killing 80 people. 1988, NASA launches STS-26, the first space shuttle mission since the Challenger disaster. 1990, construction of the Cathedral Church of St. Peter and St. Paul, better known as the Washington National Cathedral, is completed in Washington, D.C. on this date. 1990, the YF-22, which later became the F-22 Raptor, flies for the first time. 1990, the Tampere Hall, the largest concert and congress center in the Nordic countries, is inaugurated in Tampere, Finland. 1991, a Haitian coup d'etat occurs. 1992, Brazilian President Fernando Collier de Mello is impeached. 2004, the asteroid 4179 Tutatis passes within four lunar distances of Earth. 2004, Bert Rutens and Sari Spaceship One performs a successful spaceflight. 
the first of two required to win the Ansari X Prize. 2005, John Roberts is confirmed as Chief Justice of the U.S. 2006, a Boeing 737 and the Embraer 600 collide midair, killing 154 people and triggering a Brazilian aviation crisis. 2007, Calder Hall, the world's first commercial nuclear power station, is demolished in a controlled explosion. 2008, the stock market crashes after the first United States House Representative vote on the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act fails, leading to the Great Recession. 2009, an 8.1 Samoa earthquake results in a tsunami that kills over 189 and injures hundreds. 2011, a special court in India convicted all 269 accused officials for atrocity on Delitus and 17 for rape in the Vachathi case. 2013, over 42 people are killed by members of the Boko Haram at the College of Agriculture in Nigeria. 2016, 11 days after the Yuri attack, the Indian Army conducts surgical strikes against suspected militants in Pakistani-administered Kashmir. And in 2019, violence and a low turnout mar the 2019 Afghan presidential election. Well, with that having been said... <coughs> Yesterday we talked about uh, Social Security benefits, and today, and this is a result of requests from listeners, I'm going to talk about VA benefits, or the Veterans Administration. Though many today seem to think it's the uh, Department of Meetings as opposed to the Department of Veterans Affairs. I mean, I've been dealing with them for 43 years, and more and more when I try to talk to somebody, they're in a meeting. Well, the VA disability claims are how military veterans communicate with the Department of Veterans Affairs that they were injured during active duty service, and as a result of that injury, their ability to find and keep work is hindered or impossible to accomplish. It's a, supposed to be a relatively straightforward system, and we're going to talk about that system today. Now, VA claims are settled on the basis of evidence and law, in theory. In other words, VA claims examiners are required to review the entire record of evidence and follow the law in adjudicating individual disability claims. Veterans' law includes the U.S. Code, Code of Federal Regulations, case law, various internal VA guidelines, and the VA is not supposed to deviate from these established legal rules. Allegedly, the VA is always uh, required to follow the law. Now, a lot of people believe that VA benefits are a form of charity. Anything but. If you currently have a disabling illness or injury that stems from your active duty service and you present credible evidence of your condition and it's linked to your service, then you should qualify for disability benefits and get a VA rating for your disability. Now this doesn't always happen and veterans regularly have to appeal inaccurate ratings and erroneous denials vast majority of claims fall short, not because somebody evil at the VA hates veterans, but because veterans, at no fault of their own, fail to include with their claim enough evidence of their illness or injury and its connection to VA service to permit the VA to render a favorable decision in their favor. While the VA does have a legal duty to assist veterans who file claims, they won't sign a disabled um, disability rating if the evidence doesn't support that conclusion. 
And when insufficient evidence of a service connection disability exists, the VA is required by law to deny the claim. Though I have heard people take great joy in denying claims. Now, two important, although non-mandatory, items that veterans commonly fail to include with their disability claims are, number one, a private medical evidence of their current illness or injury and or a medical professional's written opinion. It's called a nexus letter stating that the military service is a possible source of their injury. Now, when you provide private medical and treatment records of a disabling illness or injury, VA has to acknowledge that evidence and give it proper weight. Uh, if you don't submit private medical evidence of a current disabling condition, the entire decision of whether the current disability exists is made by a single VA medical examiner. And of course, the findings of what are known as CMP exams, which I'll talk about in a few moments. A VA regional office claims adjuster will make the ultimate determination about whether an injury is service-connected from the available record. And as such, private medical evidence can be invaluable for establishing the record so the VA employee can more accurately de determine the nature and origin of a veteran's condition. In addition, private physicians, medical counselors, and other health care providers generally have the benefit of treating a veteran for their condition over a period of time, sometimes for years, which gives them great insight about the nature and cause of the disabling injury. By contrast, when making its determinations about a veteran's disability, the VA provides a brief medical inspection called the Compensation and Pension Exam, or a CMP exam, which generally takes about an hour. Um, requiring the VA to provide medical examinations when necessary to, to decide a claim, um, which comes out of 38 USC. Because private medical providers have the benefit of documenting a veteran's condition more thoroughly over time, their diagnosis and treatment history of the veteran carries a lot of weight and should always be included with every VA disability claim. Now, private medical records not only corroborate the existence of a veteran's illness or injury, but can also show the extent of that disability. Of course, veterans don't always seek care for their ailments. In many cases, they just can't afford to do so. A uh, close friend of mine, I've known him over 30 years, fought me like a tiger. He wasn't going to apply for that charity from the government for his uh, service-connected disabilities. When I finally convinced him to fill out all the paperwork, shortly after he finished it, he had an aneurysm. Wound up in the hospital, uh, not a VA hospital, and uh, shortly when the VA finally approved it and got ready to transfer him, he died. These issues aside, proving a veteran's illness or injury has caused problems since discharge is made easier in cases where there's a history of treatment. Not to mention the VA is allowed to draw a negative inference when there's an absence of complaints or treatment sought by the veteran for an extended period. And as a veteran, service-connected illness or injury becomes more severe and bothersome. It's more likely they'll seek medical care. The VA acts, operates quite often on assumptions. And if you don't seek medical treatment, the assumption is you don't have a disability. They don't take into consideration the expense of getting that medical treatment. 
And lastly, the VA Disability Benefits System is designed to ensure that injured military veterans get all the benefits they're lawfully entitled to. And it's intended to operate in a non-adversarial, as a, a non-adversarial process. And as I said earlier, the VA has a duty to assist veterans in developing their claims. That's from the moment they file their first application until the claim has been approved or denied. Now, the VA doesn't submit evidence to make arguments against the veterans. And there's no statute of limitations for claims, which can be reopened at any time with new evidence. And the relaxed rules of evidence uh, allows veterans to file for and get their benefits without the need for legal representation, which, of course, upsets many attorneys that I know. They seem to feel that they should be involved in everything. Uh, there's a benefit of the doubt rule, which affords veterans a relaxed legal standard of proof that requires the VA to award benefits for a, a service-connected injury unless there's a affirmative evidence to the contrary. In other words, a preponderance of the evidence against the claim. In general, if veterans who include private medical records of their disability claims are likely to succeed sooner than those that don't, and because VA claims examiners are legally required to consider all credible and relevant evidence, veterans are strongly encouraged to include private medical records with their compensation claim. Uh, successful claims often include what's called a nexus letter, which I made reference to before, which comes from a private physician, therapist, or other health care provider stating a professional opinion that the veteran's injury was incurred or aggravated by active duty military service. Once service connection has been established by the VA, additional nexus letters from private medical providers are really not required. However, you need to keep in mind that private medical records are not mandatory. Disabled veterans can still file claims without them. Let the VA make its diagnosis decision based solely on a CNP exam, plus a review of their medical records, of course. One note about the terminology and citations that we're going to be using. In veterans' law, applicants for VA benefits are generally referred to as claimants. Um, now, keep in mind that almost all claimants are, in fact, veterans. Um, now, there are also state, local, and private benefits for veterans with service-connected illnesses. You need to check into those. The uh, now, before you file your benefits, before your benefits. You need to understand a few things. Within the Department of Veterans Affairs, there are three main sections. Veterans Benefit Administration, or the VBA, handles all applications for VA benefits, including registering claims and determining eligibility. It's also tasked with administering disability compensation benefits, pensions, VA home loan guarantees, insurance, education, vocational rehabilitation benefits, and a lot more. Then there's the Veterans Health Administration, the world's largest integrated health care system. Provides medical and hospital care to veterans at 167 medical centers and more than 1,400 community-based outpatient clinics and vet centers across the country. Then there's the National Cemetery Administration, 
which handles 131 national cemeteries. <clears throat> now, within the VA, there's two, I guess you could say, quasi-independent agencies, Board of Veterans Appeals and the Office of General Counsel. Now, <clears throat> the VA claims process, in theory, is uniquely pro-veteran and non-adversarial. Now, keep that in mind. You may feel like you're fighting them, but in, as a matter of law, it is non-adversarial. Now, all disability compensation claims are filed with one of 58 VA regional offices around the country. And as part of the Veterans Benefit Administration, VA regional office employees are tasked with helping veterans develop their claims by obtaining relevant federal service records and medical evidence. Uh, <clears throat> now, periodically, and this is from personal experience, you need to file the Freedom of Information Act request with the regional office. I found documents there that I didn't know existed. And when I asked why they hadn't made me aware of them, it was like, I don't know. Now, non-adversarial benefits claims filed at the uh, VA regional offices are what are called ex parte or one-sided, which means unlike conventional civilian trials where there are two opposing sides, VA, uh, with VA claims, only the veteran gets to submit evidence, and the VA has got a duty to help them substantiate the claim. After review of the evidential record, Using the benefit of the doubt standard, the VA will issue a decision about the veteran's injury and claim for benefits. In addition, under the modern appeal system, uh, the regional offices conduct higher-level reviews and deny claims on appeal using the same evidence or supplemental claims that include new and relevant ev evidence. And the VA has a duty to assist veterans with developing evidence during original and supplemental claims, but not for higher-level review of the record. And from the regional office, you can appeal to the Board of Veterans' Appeals. Now, the Board of Veterans' Appeals conducts what's known as a de novo review, which means without they don't pay attention to the previous decision. Uh, the Board has to review and follow all applicable statutes, uh, VA regulations and precedent opinions of the Office of General Counsel, Board of Veterans' Appeals is uh, responsible for making the final decision on behalf of the VA. Now, a veteran can appeal to the board after a regional office decision, a supplemental claim, or a high-level review. And veterans also have a right to a BVA hearing before a veterans' law judge, either at the board in Washington or a traveling judge at the local regional office. Veterans have the right to present testimony and other evidence to the board. And if a hearing is not desired or needed, veterans can instead request judicial review of the record without a hearing. Decisions of the board can be appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claim. Now, keep in mind, when a Board of Veterans Appeals decisions appeal to the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, at that point in time, the proceedings become adversarial where you're fighting the power of the federal government.
Now the Court of Appeals for Veteran Claims Now as I was saying the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims has exclusive limited jurisdiction to review decisions of the Board of Appeal. This is the uh, first level of appellate review conducted outside of the VA. And it's only review the record that was before the BVA. Now, Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims can hold unlawful and set aside or reverse VA findings and material fact that are adverse to the veteran if the finding is clearly erroneous. Now that means that a reviewing court's left with a definite and firm conviction a mistake has been made. Now, <clears throat> one thing you need to keep in mind as you go through this process. The VA disability claim system is designed to afford veterans every possible opportunity and advantage to substantiate their claim and get benefits. In fact, veterans' benefits are protected property interest under the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So you get procedural due process protections at every step. You may not feel like it, but you do. Now, as I said, and I can't stress this enough, the veteran faces no time limit for filing a claim. And once a claim is filed, the VA's process for adjudicating it at the regional office and board is ex parte and non-adversarial. Now, the VA disability claim system is a strongly and uniquely pro-claimant system. Uniquely pro-claimant principles underlie the Veterans Benefits Dispensation System. So they're going to allegedly, they're supposed to lean in your favor. And if it's a coin toss, it comes down on the veteran. Now, the vast majority of VA claims are for compensation benefits for disabling illnesses or injury that stem from active duty military service does not normally include active duty for training. Once a veteran establishes service connection of a current disabling condition, there are other benefits you can uh, qualify for, like VA health care, home loans, vocational rehabilitation, which is now uh, Veterans Rehabilitation and uh, Employment, uh, is what it's called these days. Disability compensation, the military version of workers' comp, is a monthly tax-free payment to injured veterans. In order to receive disability compensation, the first hurdle is the veteran has to be discharged under conditions other than dishonorable and have a current disability that was incurred or aggravated during active duty service. There's no minimum length of service requirements for service-connected disability compensation. The shortest period I've heard of that got somebody disability compensation was one day on active duty. They got injured on the first day of training. Now, <clears throat> veterans are entitled to receive VA disability compensation benefits in the form of a monthly tax-free financial payment if they develop a disability as a result of an illness or injury. Now, keep in mind, there is no cap 
as to how long you can draw that disability compensation. Now, there are two different types of basic entitlement. There's wartime service disability and peacetime service disability. Both are covered under 38 U.S.C. For disability resulting from personal injury suffered or disease contact, contracted in line of duty or for aggravation of a pre-existing injury suffered or disease contracted in line of duty, in the active military, naval, or air service during a period of war, U.S. will pay any veteran thus disabled who was discharged or released under conditions other than dishonorable from that period of service in which the injury or disease was incurred. Um, which is a very important thing to remember, and it's not charity. I can't stress that enough. These, the um, Veterans Disability Benefits awarded under Title 38 are constitutionally protected property interest. In fact, it can't even be attacked normally in divorce proceedings. Now, when a VA gets a claim for benefits, regional office examiner first determines if the claimant qualifies as a veteran. If you're not a veteran, none of this applies. Only qualifying veterans may receive VA disability benefits. Now, under federal law, a veteran is a person who served in the active military, active military, naval or air service that was discharged or released under conditions other than dishonorable. So you have to show, usually with a form DD-214, that you served and your discharge was other than dishonorable. Now, you've established you're a veteran, and you must have been discharged from the military under conditions other than dishonorable. Um... And there's even been court cases about the other than dishonorable de uh, designation. Uh, the phrase other than dishonorable is unique to VA regulations. It's important to know that different types of discharges get uh, received by veterans uh, has different categories. There are actually five types of discharges you can get. Um... Three are given administratively by a commanding officer and are achieved simply by filing paperwork. Two types of punitive discharges can only be given after conviction at a military trial, called a court-martial. Veterans must be discharged in the conditions other than dishonorable in order to be eligible to receive VA benefits. And these administrative discharges, which are done through paperwork, is number one, honorable. Number two would be general under honorable conditions. Number three is um, less than honorable. Formerly it was called an undesirable discharge. Four is bad conduct. And five is dishonorable. Um, now, the type of discharge affects your ability to get VA benefits. You're eligible if you got an honorable or in general, under honorable conditions, you might be eligible if you had a uh, less uh, than honorable bad conduct discharge. 
you're not eligible if you got a bad conduct discharge or a dishonorable discharge. Now, honorable and general discharges are issued administratively by a commanding officer through paperwork with no judicial oversight. Discharge in honorable conditions is binding on the Department of Veterans Affairs as to the character of that discharge. Veterans and honorable and general discharges are presumptively eligible to receive VA benefits, and that's an important designation. Now, less than honorable and undesirable discharges are also given administratively with extremely limited oversight and virtually no due process for the service member. Discharges that are less than honorable or other than honorable conditions are most often given by officers to enlisted personnel in conjunction with Article 15 non-judicial punishment or following a summary court-martial that they conduct in-house. And before the merits of a claim for VA benefits can be reviewed or decided, veterans with less than honorable discharges first have to complete a character of service review in order to determine eligibility. Um, several law schools have clinics. Harvard has one. They conduct a review of BVA decisions which showed an extraordinarily high rate of denial for veterans with less than honorable discharges who sought compensation. Bad conduct discharges are given to enlisted service members after conviction by either a special court-martial or a general court-martial. Bad conduct discharge is less severe than a dishonorable discharge and is designed as a punishment for bad conduct rather than a punishment for serious offenses of either a civilian or military nature. They're authorized if a service member is convict, uh, convicted repeatedly of minor offenses and whose punitive separation appears to be necessary. Veterans who had a bad conduct discharge may be entitled to review disability compens to receive disability compensation if, after a review, their service is found to be honorable for VA purposes. However, bad conduct discharge veterans are ineligible to receive VA health care benefits, which is an important distinction. Now, a dishonorable discharge, they're barred. Those who get those are barred from receiving VA benefits under all circumstances, only exception being clinical insanity at the time of the offense. Dishonorable discharges are given to enlisted service members and warrant officers, but not uh, commissioned officers, <coughs> excuse me, following a conviction for a serious offense by a general court martial. Dishonorable discharges are reserved for those who should be separated under conditions of dishonor after having been convicted of offenses usually recognized in civilian jurisdictions as felonies or of offenses of a military nature re requiring severe punishment. Now, there are three types of court-martials, and this is something important to keep in mind. There's summary court-martial, composed of a single commissioned officer to promptly adjudicate minor offenses under a simple procedure. No right to counsel, and as such, limitations apply on the punishment that can be given. Maximum penalty for a summary court-martial is confinement for 30 days, forfeiture two-thirds paid per month for one month, and reduction to the lowest pay grade. Service members may not be punished with a discharge at summary court-martial, but are often dis administratively dismissed with a less than honorable discharge on completion of their court-martial punishment. Then there's a special court-martial. It's more serious than a summary court-martial and can be convened to a judge on non-capital offenses and certain capital offenses. Special court-martials overseen by a military law judge in some cases and it may include four jurors. Generally, the maximum penalty allowed after conviction by special court-martials of bad conduct discharge, confinement, and forfeiture of pay 
for more than uh, six months. And then there's a general court-martial, the most serious type of court-martial, may be may only be convened after a grand jury-like pretrial investigation has been conducted to determine probable cause. They're overseen by a military law judge who can be joined by eight jurors for non-capital cases and 12 for death penalty cases. Now, because general court-martials are authorized to impose serious penalties, including bad conduct and dishonorable discharges, and even death, the veterans have a right to counsel. <clears throat> now, Keep in mind, one important issue is a the character of your discharge. And the person seeking VA benefits may first establish by preponderance of the evidence that the service member upon whose service the benefits are predicated has attained the status of veteran. If a veteran was given a discharge of under, uh, under less than honorable conditions or a bad conduct discharge, they have to overcome an additional hurdle known as the character of discharge review. Uh, it's also been called a character of service determination before the VA will even address the merits of their claim to be eligible for benefits. Now, 38 CFR section 3.12 is the controlling regulation. And it says if the former service member did not die in service, then compensation is payable. Is payable. For claims based on periods of service that were terminated by discharge or release under conditions other than dishonorable. So the character of the discharge is extremely important at this step. With a large volume of denied claims, little known about how the VA conducts uh, character of discharge um, reviews. In 2018, Congress passed a law that requires the VA to establish a process for veterans to apply to find out if their discharge status qualifies them for VA benefits. Now, in conducting a character of discharge review, the VA looks at the totality of a veteran's overall record to determine whether their service should be considered honorable for VA benefit purposes or dishonorable for VA benefit purposes. Now, because the Department of Defense and the Department of Veteran Affairs use different standards, it's possible for a DOD to label a veteran's services less than dishonorable, excuse me, less than honorable, and the VA conclude that it's honorable for VA purposes. So there's a lot of hair splitting, I guess you could say. However, this finding only impacts VA benefits and has no effect on the DOD discharge status. That can only be changed by a military discharge review board or a correction board or by presidential pardon. VA makes its own determination about a veteran's service but has no authority to alter the veteran's DOD discharge classification. Um, the only recourse with the DOD's discharge upgrade is with the service department itself. Now, a uh, character of discharge review is automatically triggered when a veteran without an honorable discharge files a claim for VA benefits. And if an, the VA determines that there is an issue with the type of discharge, then the veteran has to respond to the VA with a statement about their service and all the circumstances surrounding their less than honorable discharge. Now, to demonstrate that their service was not dishonorable, 
and that they should be found eligible under the law for VA benefits, veterans with less than honorable discharges should respond with an explanation. And, of course, the VA has a form for that, 21-4138, Statement in Support of Claim, that describes the quality of their service and the circumstances surrounding their administrative less than honorable discharge. Special emphasis, of course, has to be given to any mitigating circumstances that may have impacted the veteran's behavior at the time of discharge, from PTSD from combat or military sexual trauma. There's even been cases where a veteran's drug use after combat deployment was considered self-medicating in response to PTSD. There's a lot of factors. Nothing is cut and dry. And there's also what are called buddy letters. Um, there were statements from federal service members as evidence of their honorable service. In a review of, of a uh, discharge, a uh, buddy letter, fellow veterans should highlight the quality of service they witnessed, what leads them to believe their friend's infraction was minor in an isolated incident. These buddy letters, or lay evidence as they're called, are extremely important. The VA determines a veteran's service is honorable for the VA purpose, then the claims proceeds. And if the VA examiner decides the veteran's service was dishonorable for VA purposes and therefore disqualifying, they have to explain in detail how they reached that conclusion. Of course, it can be appealed. Now, while less than honorable discharges are not necessarily a bar to VA benefits, a veteran with a less than honorable discharge is automatically considered to have been discharged under dishonorable conditions under certain circumstances. Now, in certain instances, veterans are explicitly barred from getting VA benefits. And there are two types of character of discharge um, bars to VA benefits. There are statutory bars enacted by Congress and regulatory bars put in place by the executive branch. A veteran can overcome either statutory or regulatory bars if they were clinically insane at the time of the offense that led to their discharge. So a medical aspect and buddy letters play an important role. Um, a statutory or legislative or congressional bar to benefits exists when the VA determines that a former service member's discharge or release from active duty was under any of the Conditions discussed in 38 U.S.C. Section 5303. Benefits are not payable when a veteran was discharged or released into um, one of the conditions I'm going to mention now. A conscientious projector refused to perform military service, wear the uniform, or otherwise comply with lawful orders of competent military authorities. That's another attack you can make. You can claim that the orders were given by somebody who was not a competent military authority. I've served under officers I knew were crazier than a road blizzard. Uh, then there court martial general sentence, resignation for the good of the service, desertion. I've seen deserters apply for veterans' benefits, requesting release from service as an alien during a period of hostilities, and going AWOL for more than 180 days, absent a compelling circumstance. A veteran who is AWOL for more than 180 days can still get benefits if they demonstrate to the satisfaction of the secretary 
if you can get him off the golf course, if there are compelling circumstances to warrant such a prolonged unauthorized absence. And in the regulatory or executive branch bar, the benefits exist when the VA determines a former service member's discharge or release was issued under any of the conditions listed in 38 CFR uh, section 3.12. Um, now, that was changed in 2020 when the VA said it would uh, update section 3.12, define several terms, and add a compelling circumstance exception. Now, compelling circumstance exception is not applicable for exceptions of a discharge into other than honorable conditions or its equivalent to escape trial by general court-martial or if you mutinied or convicted as a spy. Now, circumstantial exceptions are applicable for moral turpitude crimes, uh, willful or persistent misconduct, sexual acts involving aggravating circumstances or other factors affecting uh, the performance of duty. Now, what are the compelling circumstance exceptions? Serves an affirmative legal defense of a discharge that would otherwise cause a veteran to be barred from VA eligibility by regulation. Uh, absence without leave from 180 days or more, if you can explain it away, you're good to go. Moral turpitude, willful persistent misconduct, you know, sometimes involving sexual acts, involving aggravating circumstances. Well, willful and persistent misconduct is the most commonly used bar to the veterans' eligibility for their benefits. According to an analysis by Soares to Plowshares, Plow Shares, from 1992 to 2015, 84.2% of uh, denials classification of discharge um, were cited as well from persistent misconduct. That's because it's an overly broad concept and can be used as a catch-all to classify any infractions, no matter how minor, which in turn would bar veterans from getting their much-needed benefits. Keep in mind, a discharge upgrade issued by the Board of Correction of Military Records, or Naval Records, sets aside all prior bars to VA eligibility. In contrast, a discharge upgrade issued on or after October 8, 1977, by a Discharge Review Board, sets aside regulatory bars, but not statutory bars. So when you get into this area, you're going to need an attorney to assist you, somebody who is familiar with military jargon. Now, what's considered willful misconduct? Disabilities stemming from injuries caused by a veteran's own willful misconduct are generally ineligible for most VA benefits, including service-connected disability compensation, non-service-connected disability pensions, and vocational rehabilitation, vocational rehabilitation benefits. In addition, if a veteran's death is caused by their own willful misconduct, VA will not consider the death to be service-connected, and surviving family members will not qualify for uh, dependency and indemnity compensation, or DIC, benefits. All right. That having been said, all injuries and deaths that occur during active military service are initially presumed to have been in the line of duty and not as a result of willful misconduct. 
And as you might guess, willful misconduct is specifically defined by VA regulations. It's considered an act involving conscious wrongdoing or known prohibition action, a prohibited action, that involves deliberate or intentional wrongdoing and knowledge of or wanted and reckless disregard of its probable consequences. For that reason, a mere technical violation of police regulations or ordinances will not, per se, constitute willful misconduct. Now keep in mind that willful misconduct is not determinative unless it's the proximate cause of the injury, disease, or death. Now, drug or alcohol abuse may be considered willful misconduct if you, depending on the circumstances. Veterans and elders will get benefits for disabilities caused by drug or alcohol abuse. Now, the simple drinking of alcoholic beverages is not in and of itself willful misconduct. Isolated infrequent use of drugs by itself is not considered willful misconduct. Now, an injury or disease incurred during military, active military, naval, or air service should not be deemed to have been incurred in line of duty if this injury or disease was a result of the abuse of alcohol or drugs by the person who is seeking benefits. Now, how about situations with mental unsoundness that results in suicide. The unfortunate event, a veteran takes her own life. An eligible surviving spouse or family member may be eligible for service-connected... Okay. Generally, when a veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder dies from suicide because of their PTSD... Under VA regulations, a veteran's suicide is not considered willful misconduct of the veterans of, of unsound mind at the time of their death. Um, family can still be eligible for service-connected death benefits. You know, it's, there's a lot of rules and regulations that revolve around each one of these uh, things that I'm just giving you a broad overview of. I've got a book out. You can find it on Amazon. It's called a Veterans Practical Primer, and it goes into a lot of this. Now, there are certain requirements for establishing service connection of a current disability. 38 CFR 3.303 lays out the general principles. Now, service connection means that the facts shown by evidence establishes a particular illness or injury resulting in disability was incurred while serving in the armed forces, or if it was pre-existing but was aggravated during service, it can still uh, be used as the basis for establishing service connection. Now, in order to establish a right to compensation for a service-connected disability, you have to show evidence of, number one, a current disability. Now, that's defined as an illness or injury incurred or aggravated in service. You've got to show a link or a nexus between the current disability in it and in-service illness or injury shown by the evidence, or a medical nexus opinion from a private doctor or a therapist, continuity the fact that it continues, or there have been continual symptoms since discharge. And there's a number of court cases that have established that. The... Uh, in fact, the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims has 
correctly noted, in order to establish service connection, you've got to show the existence of a present disability, in-service incurrence or aggravation of a disease or injury, and a causal relationship between the present disability and the disease or injury incurred or aggravated during service. If you had it before and it got aggravated, still counts. Now, to establish service connection, you've got to show evidence that they have a disability. In absence of proof of a current disability, there can be no valid claim. Requirement of a current disability is satisfied when the claimant has a disability at the time a claim for VA disability compensation is filed or during the time that the claim is running. Now, evidence to show the existence of a current disability might include diagnosis in a veteran's DOD service medical record, private hospital records from a physician or hospital, letter from a healthcare, uh, a private health care provider confirming a diagnosis, letter from a uh, family member or close friend describing the veteran's disability and the persistent recurring symptoms, statement from a veteran describing life impact of that disability and persistent recurring symptoms. The evidence has to be considered competent or offered from a qualified source. Um, now, for VA claims... As I said earlier, there are two types of evidence, medical evidence and lay evidence, or buddy letters, in other words, and both are defined by regulation. Competent medical evidence is evidence provided by a person who is qualified through education, training, or experience to offer medical diagnosis, statements, or opinions, in other words, a doctor or a therapist. Lay evidence is any evidence not requiring uh, that the proponent have specialized education, training, or experience. It's somebody who just knows the situation. Now, you have to show they suffered an injury while on active duty that caused the current disability. And you can do that several different ways. Uh, official service or treatment records. Uh, submitting a personal statement about the incident. Buddy letters, newspaper articles, statements from friends or family members. Um, service members may have, um, service injuries may have occurred during official military duties while on authorized leave, but can't be the result of the veteran's own willful misconduct or drug or alcohol abuse. In order to cooperate or deny such a claim, the VA considers the places, the types, and circumstances of a veteran's service by reviewing their service and medical records and the official history of each unit in which they serve and all relevant medical and lay evidence. And in there is the nexus link. That's evidence of service connection or a causal relationship between the present disability and the disease or injury incurred or aggravated during service. Uh, it can be, uh, to present the case, the veteran can establish their current disability had its own set or inception during active duty service with evidence such as a nexus letter, uh, continuity or continual symptoms. Now, on that note, we come to the end of today's show, and I'm looking at some of the emails that have come in. I'm going to do another show on the VA on Monday. Today is Friday. So until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.